Hi, folks. We are so glad that you're listening to Our Body Politic. If you haven't yet, remember to follow this podcast on your podcatcher of choice like Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcast. And if you have time, please leave us a review on Apple Podcast. It helps other listeners find us and we read them for your feedback. We're here for you, with you, and because of you. So keep letting us know what's on your mind. We'd also love you to join in financially supporting the show if you are able. You can find out more at ourbodypolitic.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. This is Our Body Politic. I'm Farai Chidea. For many of us, daily life in the United States came to a grinding halt in March 2020 as the novel coronavirus rapidly spread across the country. A 2021 NIH report revealed the disease was likely in the U.S. in December of 2019, several weeks earlier than previously believed. More than one million people in the United States have died from the virus, and many others are grappling with post-COVID-19 symptoms. During his 2023 State of the Union address, President Biden signaled a shift in the U.S. approach to the virus. While the virus is not gone, Thanks to the resilience of the American people and the ingenuity of medicine, we've broken the COVID grip on us. It's clear that the politics of COVID-19 will be impacting people at home and abroad for years to come. Now, three years after the first shutdowns, medical epidemiologist and friend of the show, Dr. Kavita Trivedi, is back with us to reflect on the pandemic. She is the founder and principal at Trivedi Consultants, an innovative healthcare consulting firm providing infection control and antimicrobial stewardship. Dr. Trivedi also serves as the communicable disease controller for Alameda County in Northern California. Welcome back to the show, Dr. Trivedi. Hi, Fry. Nice to be back. Yeah, it's great to have you. We talked to you so much during the height of the pandemic. First of all, is this a pandemic still? We're definitely still reeling from the effects of the pandemic. And I think now is that long-term recovery stage, kind of the stage when you're discharged from the hospital and you're starting rehab (laughs) and you're going back home and you're starting to try to figure out how to get back into life. That is where I would say we are at now. We're trying to figure out how to get back into the world and with this different lens that we now have of having been through this pandemic. Yeah. And so at the end of January, the Biden administration announced it was going to be lifting the COVID-19 emergency that happens as of May 11th, 2023. But What does this mean for people who have been relying on free COVID testing and other support provided by this authorization? I think that there are going to be a lot of changes that people feel. I think the biggest thing will be the accessibility of vaccines, right? So vaccines are covered now currently under the public health emergency. And come May, that will no longer be true. So people that are certainly underinsured will have difficulty getting vaccines. So we really want to encourage as many people as possible to get vaccinated if you're not yet vaccinated, especially before this public health emergency is lifted. The other thing I would say about testing is right now, the private companies that are developing these tests or have these tests um, that are out in the world aren't really sure people are going to continue buying the tests after the public health emergency is over. These tests do have expiration dates. I wouldn't go out and buy as many tests as you can find, but I would consider thinking about buying some tests if that's where your family has functioned well during this pandemic 
you know, considering buying tests closer towards the end of the emergency because we just don't know how many will be available after it's lifted. I mask sometimes when I feel like I don't need to mask for myself for relatives of mine who I wish we're taking more seriously that they have health problems, but those relatives are not even masking themselves. So (laughs) is that something for us to consider? Like, I do mask differently than I used to during the height of the pandemic, but a lot of people who I sort of feel like protective of don't even mask at all. I don't know. What does one do? Yeah. Yeah, I think this is tough. And this is kind of that, exactly what I was mentioning before. We're getting out of the hospital, we're noticing how other people are acting and we're trying to figure out what makes the most sense for us. And I do think the first thing to do is do that individual risk assessment and say, what makes the most sense for me? And start from there. I think the other thing too, Fry, that I think about in those situations with people that are elderly, I don't want to be the reason that they get COVID, Yeah, right? Like yeah. I don't want to be that reason. So I still feel comfortable being safe the week, let's say, before I go visit them or I see them. And then I feel really comfortable regardless of what they're doing, right? Right. I think that it's hard. And I think everybody has to look at their situation. I don't think every situation is the same. So if you're going to a party with a bunch of younger people who you know mostly everyone is vaccinated or has been infected recently, you may act differently in that situation than you would another party where you know that there are going to be a lot of elderly people there. So I think we just have to look at every situation, think about our individual risk, and then make a determination based on that. Yeah, I mean, I was just with a person who she was passing through D.C. with her daughter on college tour, and she was still masking very much. She's a healthy woman, um, but she really is worried about long COVID. So how do we deal with the risk factors for long COVID, which I understand may be linked to how many times you actually end up getting COVID. Is that right? Right. Yeah. I think that's a really good point about long COVID. Is this a reason that we should be extra careful, right? Because we might get long COVID. I think that there's a lot more that we don't know about long COVID than we Mm. know about long COVID still. Um, It's not just one entity. It could be many conditions. It could be You had a condition before you got COVID, and once you got COVID, it now is being more manifested. You're actually showing those signs and symptoms more. And the risk is definitely higher after you have had one infection. The one thing that definitely does affect your risk of getting long COVID, and we have multiple studies to show this, is vaccination reduces your risk. So, Mm. you know, for those people that are really concerned about long COVID, I think vaccination reduces your risk. And I think for other people out there, like this mutual friend probably that we have, you know, we have to respect everyone's decisions about how they want to go about things. And some people look at this risk of long COVID and say, I want nothing to do with that. I don't want that to be a factor. I already have too many other things in my life that I'm worried about that I can't control. So I Mm -hmm. I don't want to have to deal with this. And other people are like, you know, I want to live my life based on this risk that I really don't understand that well yet. And so therefore, it's hard for me to make a really good um, risk assessment based on that. So so I think this is, again, those lines where people are going to have a very different response. I was reading a reflection that you wrote after getting COVID last year, and you noted there was a lot to celebrate in community, science, and resilience. And so as we reflect on this third anniversary of the start of the pandemic. And let me just say that 
as the pandemic was starting, I was flying from visiting my family in Zimbabwe back to the U.S. I landed in the U.S. on March 1st, and my office got shut down on the 7th. But with this third anniversary of the start of the pandemic, what do you think that public health got right and what has public health learned? Mm, Big, big question. I think that things that we could always do better is communication. I think we've learned that <laughs> across mm-hmm. across so many different sectors. I think public health is not just about conveying science. It's about conveying information in a way that makes sense to multiple different communities. So I think that aspect of public health is something that we need to work on. And I think our workforce that we are training um, needs to be better informed about how to better communicate with different people from different places. And um, and I think that's definitely one highlight for me. And I think, what did we get right? I think science overall, we were able to develop a vaccine as quickly as we were. I don't think any of us thought in March of 2020 we would have a vaccine as quickly as we did. A lot of that goes to the government putting money behind vaccine trials and the dedication of the scientific community to really focus on this one thing. We've never had the scientific community focused on one infectious disease. If we just took turns and went around and said, okay, this year it's going to be malaria. Everybody focus on malaria. The way that we were able to understand COVID was just really quite amazing when we put all of our efforts globally into understanding one disease. Just Mm -hmm. this morning, we heard about an at-home influenza test that will look at influenza A and influenza B. I mean, this is just unheard of. Before, we have not been able to do this testing at home to see if you happen to have the disease of concern, right? The more we understand testing, the more people feel comfortable doing tests at home and be able to make a, a judgment call on how I'm going to act or if I'm going to wear a mask based on the fact that I have this test. I think that's just really remarkable. Now it is time for our listeners' questions. And we asked listeners if they're still masking up. And 11% never mask, 46% mask when it's indoors and crowded, 27% mask always indoors, and 17% mask indoors and outdoors. And on top of this, 73% of our listeners felt sad about fewer people masking these days. Here's what one of our listeners had to say. This is Jackson in Portland, Oregon. I am still masking in indoor public spaces to protect myself and the people working there. COVID is still among us, and the consequences for being infected multiple times are turning out to be pretty dire. I've already had it, so I'm trying to avoid further damage to my immune system by catching it again. I'm sad to still be doing this after three years. But I'm working through the awkwardness in order to protect myself and those I'm close to. We talked quite a bit about some of the different things to think about. But is there anything we haven't talked about masking that is useful? My approach is definitely to mask in venues where I may not know about uh, vaccination, right? So Mm -hmm. smaller get-togethers where I know everyone is vaccinated. But I intend to wear a high-quality, well-fitted mask in an airplane for the foreseeable future in large venues like a concert or something like that. We saw data during the pandemic that in a community, if more people are masked, the rates of COVID are definitely lower. So 
as we come out of the public health emergency, as um, states get to do whatever they want in terms of recommending whatever mm-hmm. public health measures they want, um, populations and communities will probably be seeing very different COVID infection rates because people will, the more yeah. people are masked, the more um, protection that there is on a population level. So many things that have come out of this era are really social science research as well as medical research. But let me keep going. I could I could wax on, but we have more listener questions. So here's another one. Who should get a booster shot and when? And also, what? Like, do you, should you be trying to figure out which booster? But give us a, a, a little bit on boosters. So in terms of boosters, um, we still, the recommendation at this point is that everybody should be getting having at least one bivalent booster. Um, So that's very, very important. The bivalent booster is the booster that has the original formulation against the original strain of COVID and then this Omicron strain that we currently still have circulating. We just recently saw more data from the CDC. We definitely are preventing severe disease and hospitalization with that bivalent booster. So we definitely recommend people getting the bivalent booster. I think the other piece is about infection. So if you get infected, if you've been recently infected, when do you get the booster, right? That's a big Mm -hmm. question people have. And again, we had a new study recently published in The Lancet that talked about protection against COVID reinfection up to 10 months after that infection that you get. What we're basically finding is that an infection protects you for up to 10 months so my recommendation would be trying to get another get a booster at nine months if you have not received the bivalent booster yet because of a previous infection. OK, so I recently went to a conference and uh, just today I got an email that one of the attendees tested positive for COVID-19. So this was a conference of 500 people and I am not shocked and not even particularly shaken. But what do you do when you get a notice like this? Three years into this pandemic, Things are so different because we have tests available. We understand this disease better. We have the va- we we have the vaccines on board. I know you've been vaccinated, so you know that's why we feel such a different feeling now than we would have if you had gotten that email two and a half years ago, right? right? Exactly. And I think the point now is to know that okay, you may have been exposed if you weren't wearing a mask at that event, and be on the lookout for symptoms in the next few days. If you have symptoms, probably test. Once you test, if you test positive, then you don't want to obviously interact with other people, especially people that, you know, may really have a, a poor outcome if they get, yeah. get infected. So, you know, your risk of severe disease and hospitalization, very, very low because you have those vaccines on board. The thing is just to know, OK, I have to be vigilant if I get a sore throat. And I will say that that one thing that, you know, we know now COVID infection can be so different yeah. for different people and different times that you get it. So. You know, if you have a symptom, don't just blow it off. You mm-hmm. go in and say, oh, that's not COVID. I, I don't have COVID. Go ahead and test yourself. Um, and if the symptoms persist, I would still test by day three of symptoms so you can really ensure that you truly don't have COVID because you don't want to spread it if you, don't, if you don't have to. Here's another question about boosters, which is how long should you wait after having COVID before getting a booster? Like, I know people who got COVID on the day they were supposed to get their shot and obviously did not go get it. But how long should you wait afterwards? Right. So as I mentioned just before, I think I w- originally, and I think the official guidance is three months, right? To wait three months, 90 days after 
you have recovered from an infection, that at that point you could go ahead and consider getting another um, booster. I think that we have more recent data that you could extend that to nine to 10 months out from the infection because we surprisingly have seen people have continued protective immunity after a natural infection that may even be as similar as getting two shots of an mRNA vaccine. So somewhere between three to nine months, again, this could be an individual risk assessment where you say, you know, I have, I'm immunosuppressed. I have other medical conditions. I really don't want to get COVID. So maybe you get it after six months of the infection, but you know, somewhere between three and nine months, but you could wait up to nine months if you feel comfortable doing that. What about pregnancy? It seems as if now um, doctors are starting to evaluate what it means when a pregnant woman gets COVID. What are people looking at? Yeah. So for pregnancy, I think it's paramount that you are vaccinated. Early in the pandemic, saw a lot of women that had poor outcomes with pregnancy when they got infected during their pregnancy. Uh, with their babies. And I think the the positive thing about having those antibodies circulate in your in your body from the vaccine is you can pass those passively to your unborn child. And then your unborn child will have immunity for up to even looks like what maybe one year where they are not eligible to get vaccinated anyway. So you're able to protect yourself, help protect your pregnancy, and certainly provide passive immunity to your child. So I'm going to wrap it up here. I could talk to you about this all day because yeah. I'm fascinated by it. Um, but what about the avian flu? Is there yet another possible pandemic? I kind of want to know if I should be prepared. What do you think? So we're following avian influenza really closely. I will mention that there are many other viruses that we've been following during this pandemic. So Ebola, Marburg virus now in French Guinea. I mean, there's so many different infections that we are following. I think avian influenza, we are concerned that it could mutate and then transmit to adults. We have a couple of cases in Cambodia right now that we're looking at. So, you know, the way I'm looking at all these emerging infections is we have had a really um, personal experience with SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19. And most other emerging diseases don't end up affecting all of us in the same exact way. So I think it's good for us all to be aware that um, every day is a gift, right? Mm. And the way that the world may look right now may not be so um, in the foreseeable future. So we have to act on what we know now. And we certainly know a lot more about respiratory viruses and how viruses spread. So let's continue to practice those public health interventions that we've learned that work. And and truly, somebody said to me the other day, what's a really big deal about wearing a mask in certain situations, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's not that hard in, in yep. some situations, right? Mm-hmm. So that, I think, should be continue to be considered. So avian influenza, we will see more to come, definitely. Well, we would love to keep talking to you about cooties, <laughs> <laughs> specifically viruses and other things that we need to know about in health and public health. Dr. Trivedi, thank you so much. Thanks so much, Fry. It was really nice to be back. That was Dr. Kavita Trivedi, founder and principal at Trivedi Consultants and Communicable Disease Controller for Alameda County in California. (music) 
You're listening to Our Body Politic. I'm Farai Chidea. When U.S. democracy is at stake, Black women are at the front lines. That's the case that April Ryan makes in her last book, Black Women Will Save the World, an anthem. Ryan is a seasoned White House reporter, CNN analyst, and the Washington, D.C. bureau chief for The Grio. She knows firsthand the pressure of leading as a Black woman. She has been a White House press correspondent for more than 25 years and often one of the few Black voices in the room asking the hard questions that other reporters don't. We're asking April about writing this powerful anthem, the State of the Union Address, and how Black women are continuing to lead and preserve our nation's democracy. Welcome back to the show, April, and congratulations on your book. Thank you, Farai. How are you? Oh, I'm doing good. You know what? I love this book so much, and I'm I glad. have become an audiobook listener. I was one of these people who was like, I just don't know how people listen to audiobooks. And then I just got, as I got into radio, I really got into the love of listening to books on tape, if I can use that. Theater of the mind. Yes, theater of the mind. Theater of the mind. And I loved hearing your voice saying your words with your story (laughs) and our story. And I feel so seen by it that I'm thinking about holding a listening group at my mom's retirement community. Come on now. Yeah, right? So we can put your audio book on and we could play a chapter a week and just talk about it afterwards. My gosh, I would love to come to the group. Yes! Yeah, I would love to do that. So let's put that up. But it's so interesting. I hear so many people love the audio book. I hate listening to myself. (laughs) I hate listening to myself, too. No, I know. And I'm so emotional. There are a couple spots in that book. I really kind of, I had to hold tears. I had to pull back. Mm -hmm. You know, writing was cathartic. The tears were coming and flowing. Do I say this? Do I not say this? Okay, I'll put it in there. And I'm just going to breathe through it. And then when you read it again, it's like, oh. You know, you re-injure yourself, but it's a good way to get it out. I relate to that. You know, it's such an interesting and strange time in American history where we are seeing all of the issues of identity, race, Mm. class, national origin, you know, gender, sexuality. Everything is being debated right now. And you come in very specifically focused in this book on Black women. But you focus here in a way that is just absolutely stunningly clear. And that's that's the voice and the message that I clung to. So how did you decide on this format and this focus? So let me say this. I'm the daughter of a strong Black woman who's now transitioned this life, and I miss her terribly. Mm. If it weren't for her, I would not be where I am. Her strength was in her understanding of who she was in spite of the nation not believing and wanting Black women to be the face of beauty, the face of vulnerability, the face of anything, right? And we're still in 2023 seeing the first this, the first that, which is an atrocity to me. In my way of missing my mother, remembering the lessons that she taught me, And watching all these other women just thrive in spite of, and then understanding that in the workplace, we're going through microaggressions and still supporting the boss who's getting all the accolades. We just sitting back and just praying for a better day in the office. I said, I got to celebrate these women. We hold up the church house. We hold up the government house, okay? We hold up the workplace. We hold up the, the home. We're the first ones there when something's going on in school. We're the first ones there in City Hall, but the neighborhood's not right. 
we are the first line of care, the first line of comfort, the first line to bring people in. We have been lifting and toting since the day we got here. And I described that in the book. We were taught and forced to give and not receive. Mm. We are such givers that we don't stop and take a breath. We're such workhorses. We have to do what we have to do because we're climbing some ladder that never gets us to the place that we want. And I said, wait a minute. I said, we got to stop. I got to celebrate these women. And I'm shocked that my book has been heralded the way it is because there are not many books out here like that. I've been thinking about this for a long time, particularly when I was on the tour for the last book, Under Fire, you know, mm-hmm. talking about everything I was going through with the Donald Trump White House. A lot of Black women came to me crying that would see him on the road. Oh, my God, you make me feel seen because I'm going through the same thing in my workplace. I'm like, wow. Mm-hmm. For these women to be crying and, and, and emoting to me, I said, I have to write about it. So in your book, you write about Vice President Harris, who is, of course, the first Black, South Asian, and woman in the role. That's a lot of firsts. Could you just read a tiny little excerpt for us? Yes. Because she is the first, Vice President Harris has unique strengths and particular burdens. The president understands this and leverages her unique profile to benefit the overall success of the administration. The truth is that President Biden has relied heavily on Black women more broadly since the start of his campaign. Without Black women in his inner circle, without the enthusiasm of Black women at the voting booth, and without the heroics of legendary organizers like Stacey Abrams, including her legion of followers, the dedicated activists, some known, most unknown, who did the hard work of registering, turning out, and protecting voters, Biden would not be president, period. But what does it mean for President Biden to owe his presidency to the efforts of Black women and yet still need to work on triangulating, as we heard in the State of the Union speech, to voters who are skeptical of the needs of Black women? You know, it's important that he recognizes it. And you see it in the little efforts, meeting with this woman or talking to this woman or just putting the faces of those who are suffering through or the person who identifies with whatever initiative he wants to do. But then there are also larger scale issues. Reaching out to kitchen cabinet members out there, he loves to tout his connection with the Black community, particularly real people. And the real people that he talks to, he shows his thanks through not just optics, but people who have the pedigree to do the work. Kamala Harris, for all intents and purposes, pushed him to do better. If she had not challenged him, and I talk about this in the book, they were really um, going through something. They had been friends, and there was a tension for a while. I said it had to be an act of God for them to ever talk again and look at where they are now. He understood that he needed a Black woman. He needed the strength of a Black woman. He needed the Black woman who really understood service. You know, he had thought about putting Susan Rice in as vice president, but the problem for Susan Rice, a lot of Black people didn't know her, but he wanted her so much in his administration because of her capability, her connections, who she was. He gave her a space that did not have to be confirmed because he knew 
if he made her secretary of state or anything else, she wouldn't be there. But he needed her and he wanted the world to see Marsha Fudge. You don't even have to say anything about Marsha Fudge, the fighter. When women go to serve, we serve to uplift and love. And when our male counterparts do it, it's for ego, money and power. Right. That's a study from our friend Cornell Belcher. But when we go, we go to make a difference. And he realizes that we haven't been in those spaces and places. Shalonda Young, the head of the Office of Budget and Management, a black woman, mm-hmm. okay, who's dealing with the finances of the nation to look and see what do we need to do? How can we afford this? Where does it come from? At the end, you know, women, black women are showing up in spaces and places that we've never been for. Kamala Harris, Katanji Brown-Jackson the first black woman Supreme Court justice who looks like us and sounds like us. Then you have another K, Karine Jean-Pierre mm. in the LGBTQ plus community. She comes from Haitian immigrants, migrants. And of course and with her wife, with, a powerful, brilliant journalist. Yes. He put a face on the unseen. Black women go unseen in too many instances. He brought them in. And I don't think he even realized the magnitude of what he's done. He is the most diverse president as far as administration staffing than any other president. First, it was Bill Clinton. For the Republicans, it was George W. Bush. Barack Obama came in. He was very heavy with women in leadership. So he was very gender diverse. But this president is not only gender diverse, he's racially diverse. He's LGBTQ plus diverse. But his feet were put to the fire. I believe that he was on the track to do things. But until Kabbalah Harris challenged him about the issues of busing in that debate, it hurt him. Yeah, that was that was a tense moment. Yeah, it was a very tense moment. Months later or weeks later, he saw me in Detroit at the NAACP presidential forum. And he said, you know, my heart, you know, my heart that bothered him. And he kept talking about, you know, we were friends and we supported her for every emphasis that she tried. I just don't understand. He was saying this to me, but it, it bothered himself that in a turmoil that he had to reconcile within himself, pushed him to do better and to go farther than any other president. Issues of race. I mean, we, we still got a long way to go. But I believe Kamala Harris, her revelation in that debate worked on him and pushed him to do better and go farther. Let's talk about a few different women, Mm -hmm. Black women, Mm -hmm. that you talk about in your book. Let's Mm -hmm. start with your mother. Who is she? Tell tell us about her. Oh, she was the most laid-back, classy, peaceful, giving woman that I've ever met in my life or person. She came from humble beginnings in North Carolina. She regaled me always about civil rights and racism. And she taught me how to be. She taught me how to be in the workplace. She taught me how to be in the church house. She taught me how to be a parent and a wife. Mm. She taught me how to expect that I can be something that I dream of. Mm -hmm. She said, as long as you work hard, and you get a good education, you can do anything you want. She taught me that I could live my life without boundaries and borders. I love that. Yeah. And, you know, she transitioned this life unexpectedly at the age of 64. She died of leukemia. Oh, I'm so sorry. 
Yeah, this is, I think, 16 years that I haven't had my mother. And yeah. this is my way of going through the grieving process because I was pregnant with my daughter when she passed. And I had to defer my mourning to bring my child into the world because mm-hmm. it tore me up, you know. She is the first woman that I've really looked to as, she's my pedestal. She is my icon. She's my idol. She's the person that I strive to be. Yeah. And um, she was very spiritual. She was just an amazing person. And I'm going to tell you how amazing she was. She toiled on the campus of Morgan State University for 42 and a half years until her death. Okay. Wow. And that's your alma mater, right? My alma mater. I'm I'm an HBCU baby. I was literally born on a campus. I love it. So she worked with students. She was in the student activities department. I cannot go anywhere in the world without meeting someone who says, oh, and your mother. Oh, Mm. and your mother. And it touches my heart. She enabled those students. She believed in the future. She believed in Black people being and living out their dreams. She enabled so many students. And her legacy is not just me. It's all those students. Oh, your mom was everything. Miss Ryan, Miss Ryan. It touches my heart. So I love I'm it. Goosebumps now as um, yes. I talk. Yeah. But she was everything to me in the home. But then she had this whole nother life that she was like the queen there. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. So she was an amazing woman. And I hope and pray that I could be half the woman that she was before her death. I am just so clear that she is smiling right now, mm. hearing your words of blessing and bless her. Bless her yeah. soul, too. Yeah. All right. Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson. Ooh. She, let me tell you something. I'm getting goosebumps with her. To see this Black woman unapologetically wearing braids in the U.S. Supreme Court. And when she was not, she could have changed them. She could have done something totally different. When we are still fighting about federal laws to allow us to wear our crown, our braids, Mm -hmm. or our locks, you know, in, in workspaces in federal areas. She's unapologetically Black. She talks about her experiences with her parents who had humble beginnings, you know, in Florida. She also quotes Bible scriptures. She also talks about service. And she was quoting Maya Angelou and Still I Rise. Let me tell you something. Mm -hmm. Every Black woman was losing their mind. But to see that picture when Joe Biden nominated her in the cross hall, I was in Baltimore. It was an icy day. And I told my colleague, I said, you go. I've seen history so much. I said, you go. Mm. I was at that television clicking my phone, taking pictures because that was a moment we have never seen before. And to have someone who looks like me who is heralded and to have those two black women flanking a, a white president of the United States, who... After all these years, and to think about how we were first selected to come to this country. Mm. You know, the the slave handlers, you know, put us in these little rooms. And the ones who were selected to go on the journey, they determined through our breasts. If our breasts sagged, we were spoiled. We had already had children. They wanted us to be ready for something fresh and new and ready to work, you know. So if our breasts sagged, we were thrown back. But if our breasts were perky, you made the voyage. The question is, did you survive that hard trip across the ocean? 
Mm. Where the shark pattern changed because they threw bodies off slave ships. This is why I celebrate Black women. Because we've endured. I celebrate us. And it's not pushing any other group away. It's not pushing our men away. But we have had to be a force, be independent, be the savior of every space because our men were taken from us. We had no covering, you know? They would take them, our men desire with somebody else to take them to other plantations. Our men couldn't fight for us. If they did, they'd be gone. So we've had to learn to be powerful and strong. Yeah, I was talking, I did something with Michelle Martin, another of our sister journalists. Yes. And Gloria Steinem. And um, mm-hmm. it was when Vice President Harris uh, was right before the inauguration when she became vice president. And I was talking about how white women have traditionally in America used the proxy power of patriarchy to get their needs met, to select white men yeah. to be their emissaries. And black women have not had that path. And yeah. that Vice President Harris was in some ways, the culmination of the path of direct leadership versus proxy leadership. Does that resonate right. for you? Yeah. Um, and you brought up Gloria Steinem, and I'm glad because when Donald Trump first became president, she talked about that study that showed how white women, a lot of these married white women voted for Donald Trump, even in the midst of the Tic Tac scandal, because they were voting, as you said, by proxy through their husbands who had their economy, who had everything in their home, right? You know, yeah. that part. Yes, that part. A hundred percent. So let's go back to uh, one more Black woman of this era who has met the moment, Stacey Abrams. Mm. Let me tell you something. She's a winner. Even though she didn't win the governorship twice, and that last vote was so tremendous against her. And and that vote for Kemp did not translate to Herschel Walker. They wanted to make a statement to Stacey Abrams by that vote, because that vote for Kemp did not translate to Herschel Walker. It did not go down the Republican ticket. They wanted her out so much because... For this Black woman to change that Southern state that has been red for so long, a state where we saw people hunt down Ahmaud Arbery like an animal, a state that has a lot of the cradles of the civil rights movement, particularly in Atlanta. Georgia is like this, and we all say this. You have Atlanta, then there's Georgia, right? But for this Black woman to quietly, and she told them what she was going to do to do it, They didn't believe, oh, you're not going to be able to do that. She did it. But they wanted to send her a message saying, you can't do this. But she's so powerful. She won. She won by putting Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff in Senate seats. In spite of losing the governorship twice, there's a concerted effort to keep her away from this. The effort is because she's a winner. The only reason why they went after her so fiercely It's because she won. And we've got to remember that. Instead of looking, oh, she, no, she won. Her trajectory is bright. You're listening to Our Body Politic. I'm your host, Farai Chidea. If you're just tuning in, you can catch the whole conversation on our podcast. Just find Our Body Politic wherever you listen to podcasts. You mentioned Ahmaud Arbery. And of course, right now, another name is in the news, Tyree Nichols. Yeah. I personally have not watched any of the footage. 
I mm. have consumed all of the news about his passing by text mm-hmm. because I am deeply traumatized, even as a battle-hardened journalist who's covered white supremacists yeah. for a quarter of a century mm-hmm. and many other things. I'm still traumatized by watching another human being suffer and yeah. die. What are we meant to do as Black female journalists with the quest for truth in an age of social media and when the death of someone can be shared for reasons good or bad? How do we process that? For I, I'm going to tell you something. I'm with you. I watched it. I had to take a deep breath and I watched it for the sake of informing the people who look to me for answers. I had to do it for that, for that reason alone. But I'm going to tell you, I was adamant that I wasn't going to watch the George Floyd video. My oldest daughter, who's now at American University, she's a sophomore. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, at the time, she was like, you are April Ryan. I was like, what? What are you saying? My daughter was like, Ma, you're April Ryan. And you got to talk about this in the White House. I said, I'm not. I said, leave me alone. I said, I can't. <laughs> you got... They I would love to down. be at your kitchen table. Oh, my God. Let me tell you. Oh, my child. My child. My oldest child. Then the youngest one chimed in. Oh, mommy. I don't know where they got it from. But they are tree hugging, marching, fist pumping feminists. Okay, I love and it. And just last week they were like, "Mom, you got to talk about these women in Afghanistan." Mom, I'm like, "Okay." I said, "You want me to go save the world?" I said, "I don't have an S on my back." Okay, they but but they made me watch. And I said, "Thank you," but it is traumatizing, and we we have to save our minds as well. We have to yeah. save our hearts too. But we also have to report. And it's tough. But, you know, when I report, my heart goes out. You know, I I am Black. I'm a woman. I've been stopped by police. Yeah. And sometimes your journalistic hat comes off because you can understand. And I write so that people understand clearly. Yeah what the stakes are, what it's about. And I'm going to tell you, I've been in a space where I've told presidents, this is not new, okay? We have been sheriffed and police since the time we came here. This is not new. It took 67 years for Emmett Till to have justice with the anti-lynching law. It's taken centuries for there to be accountability in the policing of Black bodies. Black people should be able to get to court without having street corner justice. Mm. You know, you and I could put on a cap and go, and it, we don't even have to have a cap. Yeah. There's a no. black person in America. Oh yeah, no, I That I, could be subjected yeah. to anything like anybody else. And that's the reality. Absolutely. I think about you talking about your children. I think mm. about you talking about your mother. I think about mm. my family's history and the intergenerational legacy of struggle of, yeah. of black women. And so considering how you were hounded during the Trump presidency by the president, who was someone who you needed to talk to to do your job, and everything else that you've seen, where do you think the legacy goes from here? You know, are you hopeful? You know, my my oldest daughter, who has been impressing upon me that I need to, to look at videos and champion women in other countries, she's going to be a psychologist. She's studying for her psychology degree. She wants to be a doctor. She wants to help people who are going through trauma. Beautiful. Service, right? 
And yeah, I'm paying that bill, right? That have to be, <laughs> to be what she wants to be. But that makes me feel good. And my other daughter, she wants to serve some kind of way. She wants to be a doctor. She said she wants to be a surgeon. I said, you can be anything you want to be as long as you have a good education. Mm-hmm. You work hard. I did exactly what my mother said. I'm trying to create a platform for them to jump off, you know? Yeah. Because... You know, we come into this world behind the curve and working at the White House and hearing and seeing what you see, you have an understanding of what's what. And if I am afforded any opportunity to change the dynamic of any life, I will, to include my children. Um, Life is hard, but, -hmm. you know, I'm here to help. (laughs) Yes. We're going to have to wrap it up here. I could talk to you all day and all night, but you've got a million jobs. So how do you refill your well? What fills you up? What gives you joy? Mindless TV. I love it. (laughs) I leave here and watch the most craziest reality shows ever because I don't want want it to consume my life. Mm -hmm. Then from here, I take moments to myself and just think and just quietness, just Therapy and creating, right? Yes. And it helps you sleep. It works another part of your brain that you're not working. Yes. And so I have a candle company. My oh fiance, my goodness. Yes. It's called Jair Candles. J-A-R-E candles.com. I will be buying some. <laughs> Thank you. We are in five stores, okay? I love in it. In Charlottesville, Washington, D.C., National Harbor, and Baltimore. And more coming. Oh my goodness. But it's a tribute to my mom. The grief, my mourning is still happening. I'm working through the grieving process still 16 years later. When she was dying of leukemia, the oncologist said, you cannot burn firewood in the house anymore. You can't have a fireplace fire. You can't barbecue and you cannot burn paraffin candles Hmm. because of the carcinogens. Mm -hmm. And they said, you have to burn soy. Back 16 years ago, we couldn't find soy. Right. And I just did it, a, you know, about a year and a half ago. It's something to do to work through. And, you know, it was kind of like a little tribute to my mother. And her sisters were like, oh, let me let me try one. They were like, oh, these are nice. Friend of mine, Ramonda Young, over the owner at Mahogany Books. She said, girl, let me see one of these. Mm-hmm. She has I sold over this. 400 of those candles. Oh, my gosh. Year. This is amazing. Yes, I'm telling you, we are doing, we, let me tell you, so... That is beautiful. Thank you. It's born out of my mother's legacy and it's born out of my grief and her legacy. But I'm telling you, we just had a big order for over 300 candles that we did at the top of the year for a major organization. I can't say yet because they're going to unveil them. I think the first year we put out over 400 candles and we did 300 at the top of the year already for this year. So, you know, with a trajectory. You are on fire. <laughs> I, love, I love this. You know, the thing that I would love to do is I would love to do some of the family pickles, you know, like chow chow. You know, like all the Southern pickles, you know. Uh, Yeah, I, I grew up canning. So it's been a minute. But you know what, April? It is about time for me to let you go and continue. Oh. Put, put that superwoman cape back on, April Ryan. I'm it has not been... your superwoman. <laughs> and yet you are. <laughs> it has been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much, April. I appreciate you so much, my Baltimore sister. When you come back, you let me know, okay? A hundred percent. 
That was CNN analyst and The Griot's White House correspondent, April Ryan, on her new book, Black Women Will Save the World, an anthem. Thanks for listening to Our Body Politic. We are on the air each week and everywhere you listen to podcasts. Our Body Politic is produced by Diaspora Farms and Rococo Punch. I'm host and executive producer for Rye Chidea. Nina Spensley is also executive producer. Emily J. Daly is our senior producer. Bridget McAllister is our booking producer. Anoa Shanga is our producer. Natina Bean and Emily Ho are our associate producers. Kelsey Kudak is our fact checker. This program is produced with support from the Luce Foundation, Open Society Foundation, Ford Foundation, Craig Newmark Philanthropies, the Charles and Lynn Schusterman Family Philanthropies, Democracy Fund, the Harnish Foundation, Compton Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, the Be Me Community, Katie McGrath and J.J. Abrams Family Foundation, and from generous contributions from listeners like you. <laughs>